0: This is the THORN Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at THORN and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of THORN. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everyone and welcome to the Thorne Podcast. Joining me this week is one of the brilliant minds behind many of Thorne's formulations, my colleague, friend, and returning guest of the pod, Dr. Stephen Phipps. Dr. Phipps is the Chief Innovation Officer at Thorne. He has an ND degree in naturopathic medicine and a PhD in pharmaceutical science. So Stephen, how are you doing today? Anything interesting going on in your life?
1: Uh, It seems always a lot of fun stuff going on here at the epicenter of Thorne's R&D group here in South Carolina. I think it's going to be great to talk this through with y'all kind of give you just a little bit of background on why I love R&D so much. Came in, like you said, with uh, the naturopathic medicine degree in the pharmaceutical sciences, but really it started off in ethnobotany, which is where I got some of my research chops started and really looking at an interaction of how community groups utilize plants, whether that be for medicine, for agricultural practices, for things like trade, um, building out ropes and, and, and turpentine and the like. Really saw that, you know, the natural world is a way to get a sense of how you know, we've been able to over time really evolve and grow into understanding how to use it, the compounds that come from it and the overarching, I think, themes of health, wellness and, and interactions with our environment that kind of give us what we see at Thorn. So all in all, I think um, a lot can be said from this area and there's still a lot to go for and look at as we get more and more detail coming at us on how our environment and nature works. So it should be fun.
0: Wow, that's a that's definitely a, a lot to to think about and talk about, so I'm sure we'll have uh, an interesting conversation. As an aside, I'm in the middle of reading a book that's about 20 years old it's called Some Like It Hot and it's written by an ethnobotanist named Gary Nobum from University of Arizona and he talks about the exact thing you're talking about which is how all these phytochemicals in our environment interact with different people in different ways. And I mention it because it it again opens a lot of doors to the whole concept of what nutritional supplements are all about. I think in the mainstream media you get the idea that all it is is uh, the alphabet, you know, the B vitamins and C, D, E, and all that, and that that's the end of the story. And I'm I'm hoping that today you'll have a chance to tell us what some of the other supplements are. Why don't we uh, Why don't we dive right into the topic and look behind the scenes? How does Thorne actually make supplements? Where does the idea come from? How is the science collected? And, and what kind of testing is done before you end up with a finished product? You know, the public just sees a bottle with capsules in it or a canister with powder. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That is, that is.
1: And so what probably is the longest part, what, what I would call the fuzzy front end of development. And this is kind of like that primordial goop that you're starting to try to build something from, right? So you're asking lots of different people, lots of different questions, right? And sometimes we'll ask obviously our clientele, that might be physicians, that may be consumers that come to Thorn.com or to Amazon, um, that may be what we would call um, key opinion leaders, right? So different doctors or PhDs or researchers really that have been trying to understand some of these, you know, these pathways or these networks Um, And then look at the overall ways that we can explain this stuff and what people are interested in. And so all this kind of first part comes together to try to synthesize a storyboard of sorts or a story that someone can really start to walk through um, and give what I would call the elevator pitch. And I'm sure you've probably heard some of these, Bob, in your career where someone might come to you and be like, I have the perfect product for you or for your practice or whatever it may be, right? And they try to pitch it to you. And they give you the reasons to believe why it should work and the science behind why it should work and how they've done it differently, those before them. And that's kind of a, a standard story. Right. But I think what tends to happen sometimes is that you can take a little bit less time than you should on the I would say data behind the story, the science horse behind the marketing horse versus them being side by side and building something you know that would be design quality by design driven. So we expect the efficacy, the efficacy itself then tells the story and then that story can be communicated and then hopefully felt by uh, the people taking it. And that's when that all comes together, I think in the perfect harmony of a, of a good product. To me, that's the fun, very first start piece. and. I'd like to hear your thoughts too, because I know this has been a topic of yours that has been of interest, and obviously uh, with areas like uh, genes and foods and cultural diversity in your reading list, I'm sure that uh, it brings about questions on how to start to ask some of these things in the front end of the ideas, right?
0: Well, I mean, my starting point as a practicing physician is just recognizing that there's a lot of chronic disease out there. There's more diabetes, there's dementia going on, there's cancer and the solutions being presented right now are not adequate they're either super expensive or they've got a lot of side effects not readily available so there's the chronic disease and even with acute conditions um gosh just yesterday i was talking to a friend who had developed a respiratory infection with not covid just a something she'd picked up maybe at an airport and had been prescribed a an inhaler and she went to the pharmacy to get it. It was five hundred dollars for an inhaler for a simple respiratory infection. And you know, she said to me, "There's got to be something better than this. I mean, this is this doesn't make sense." So as a as a physician, I'm always looking for something better that's less expensive, that's less toxic, et cetera. And so, why not turn to our ancestors and say, "Well, is there a tea that people have?" consumed you know or a ground up herb that people have consumed and if so is it possible that we could do a more concentrated version so it's more likely to be effective in that acute scenario or for a chronic illness so i i would say i always have my ears on for what's out there and
1: what's next so that's that initial question that stimulates you know you to go out and look in the literature or to stream through these things to gather up, you know, what those things may be, right? And kind of get a sense of what we would call like the, 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 the molecular network behind a problem, right? So as a physician, your patient comes to you with a problem, much like as someone developing a product, we're trying to bring a solution to a problem that is out there. And then we base on those, the ingredients, and from there, the ingredients will have a mechanism and we'll try to weave that mechanism in through those initial idea phases Um, And really target how they're working and focus on that. I think you brought up a good point of they might have had an herb, but is there ways to utilize that herb in a more concentrated or standardized way so that our expectation is is it'll act on the body each time, the same time, in the same way, right? So it's consistency. And so that's what we would go out and do. So if you could be looking at something like coptis, for example, you might go out and go and get, which is an herb that's been used, you know, for- lots of different things immune on on top of others but coptis
0: chinensis the chinese herb yep that's the one
1: um and then you look into the literature and say okay well there is berberine proto-berberines um and all kind in a litany of other things in there that have been working over time and so you know you may go and say okay well you know for this particular thing i might focus in on a broad spectrum but more rich to extract because the more I you know taper it down, the more narrowed my mechanism of action becomes, right? So, you know, and I might kind of miss it altogether or don't have as much of a response because the thing that we see typically on herbal extracts is, you know, we standardize to, you know, a couple of different molecules, but there's only a very few amount of botanicals that you're going to standardize To almost a specific or pure amount. Um, There's, you know, I can only think of a cup, you know, enough to be on my hand, but that's kind of the thing that we see is that we're making a a fingerprint or a chemotype, and that's really how we would drive that through. So, say we got all that done and we got the ideas hammered out, um, and we'd go in and we would then build a prototype. And that prototype would be at the level of a bench, right? So, making something that's a hundred capsules or a hundred servings, if it's a powder or something, right? To really get a sense of, okay, here's our idea. We've taken it. We've talked to all of our different people. We've come to a consensus that these are really the key areas of focus. Went out and sourced our ingredients. We've worked with our trusted suppliers, or in some cases, we may decide to build our own extract or extraction process. So, you know, we work through that. And we get our stuff together and we make our, our recipe, right? And then that recipe lives in the prototype. If it's a complex you know, product and I'm needing more understanding, we may do some focus group work or some beta testing. And that might be that we allow a few physicians to try it out and see how things go. Or you know, we may just ask a bit more uh, you know, in a marketing setting of how experiential things become. Or if it's really complicated and we really want to have an understanding of how things may be working, we may put it through a clinical trial and really get at where these things may live um, with what we would call claims or or evidence uh, that they're working in certain ways. We may put them all together and say, we need to really make sure that this works like we think it is. You know, let's put it through a trial and work through that system. And so I think one great example of that, that's, you know, on MedArchive right now would have been like the Sinequell work, right? Where, you know, we were looking at how brain function alters in a season with uh, junior A ice hockey players. And then from there, How does it change when we give them numerous nutrients uh, that are going to support a couple of different pathways within the neurological system to hopefully support optimized brain function over the the, uh, season when we know there could be some repetitive uh, head impacts that are non-concussive in nature that can cause some overarching diminishment of function over time, right?
0: Yeah, let me just clarify. So Senequel is a product that is a powder that was, I believe designed by a neurologist with a specialty in head injury, and Thorne collaborated with that neurologist, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we that was kind of where we took in a key opinion leader and really worked through uh, how to best kind of layer some of this in. There was obviously some back and forth and different iterations, you know, that came within this. And this last one that just recently was launched that included nicotinamide riboside and a, a CoQ10 phytosome to kind of bolster up some of the energetics uh, was the one that we put through the trial.
0: Now, does Thorne sponsor... A lot of studies, either animal studies or clinical studies?
1: Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll partner quite a bit within clinical settings. So we will have a, what I would say, both a sponsored and a non-sponsored track, which, you know, the non-sponsored is, you know, being able to support, you know, uh, different clinicians Or different physicians or different researchers with the material needed for their trial design, and we we can do retesting to kind of support you know making sure that it's consistent throughout their study. Work with them on how to you know get all of that out in a proper way, and then you know we both benefit from their work on the claims that may not exactly be what we want to study, but we do want to push the science ahead and feel like it was a good way of doing that. And so we've always been very, I think, involved in the uh, overarching clinical science side and trying to make sure that we increase the amount of scientific rigor that comes into the dietary supplement development and, and also just in a general marketplace for that for that very reason
0: so i gotta say when when people read in mainstream media that nutritional supplements are not studied or they, they aren't researched it's simply not true
1: yeah correct i mean uh you know i think there's always going to be a spectrum and there may be you know groups out there that are doing that aren't doing that but you know that's not going to be anything corner that gets behind or has gone that's something that uh in general when we look at you know a lot of the good players in the industry and us included there is a want for there to be a scientific rigor behind what we're doing because I think it resonates, right? Like if people can feel their product and they know what's going on and they know what's in it and they understand that there's science behind it, like all those things make for a better product design. And what we, we typically call that, you know, on our side is quality by design, right? So that's kind of both the science behind it and kind of also to how we test and how we develop the testing, you know, so that by the time it comes to market, after prototyping and then, the you know, in scale, like there's that ability to consistently have that quality aspect of what's going into the product being exemplary of what's been tested in the scientific community or what's been sourced, right? So it's continuing on that ability to kind of trace through how we've decided to design a product.
0: So how long does it typically take from the time that you or that somebody on your team first hears about a product to the point where it shows up on the consumer shelf? Is this an extended
1: process? Uh, how, what's a typical kind of timeframe? So you could see three to five years being a normal kind of piece. Um, but even simplistic things, you know, you're never going to, if you're doing it right, you'll never really truncate below at least, uh, you know, I'd say a year and a half. And, and the reason why is that that, fu- that fuzzy front end, that ideation phase is really important. And I know things change and obviously while you're working, things change. So you have to be ready to pivot. So while we may have one prototype, you know, underneath it, we have at least two or three other ideas that kind of go after some of the core potential, what we'd call pitfalls or problems if we were to go one way or the other, basically knowing that, there may be some things along the way that could slow us down right so one great example would be something like um uh you know uh, rhodiola right so
0: arctic root also called arctic root right
1: right exactly the arctic root, the rhodiola rosea definitely comes from that more arboreal region you know across the globe but mainly in areas like siberia siberia um, Canada has a few, but we don't use those. And then like the Norwegian Scandinavian area has a few chemotypes that have been used too. But if you look at it, like recently, um, you know, the rhodiola has hit the, uh, you know, the endangered species list in some of the, the areas that now need more rigorous sourcing and licensure, right? So the uh, sites list or cities list is what you'd be looking at. And so if I was to develop in there, the risk would be if we were not careful in sourcing And understanding that kind of geographic and also ecological impact, you know, that could be an ingredient where you would have to go back in and redesign a prototype around knowing that you didn't spend enough time making sure that you got the right types of uh, supply in place to make sure that you had a product that held up to that um, ecological standard. You know, we've we had to, you know, we take that list very seriously and in the past have definitely developed products again, knowing that there'd be some herbs on the way to that list. And we want to make sure that we do not uh, impact their time on this planet because obviously they have been very important to a lot of different people for a long time. And so making sure that we can sustainably source that and be stewards and responsible users is a, is a huge you know, need for our product design.
0: Are most of the herbs that Thorne uses, are they cultivated herbs or more of them
1: gathered by? You know, I think it's a mix. Um, You know, there are wildcrafted aspects and we use those um, alongside cultivated use. But what's interesting, though, is if you look at like the the wildcrafted versus cultivated and the like, is that there's still good harvesting practices that kind of align to how we think about using those. Right. So. You know, no matter what, you want to make sure that you know those good harvesting practices are set to that, and then also you know the the, the economic streams of wildcrafting and making sure that you understand some of that and some of the potential uh, issues that can arise um, is another thing, right? We want to make sure that those that are you know you being used in wildcrafting, you know, or their knowledge of being used in wildcrafting is something that's upheld. And there's a lot of great groups that do that, and. The reason I bring that up is, uh, you know, like back in the day when you had like paclitaxel being developed, that was like the I think um, from yew trees, right? Yeah, from the Pacific <laughs> yew trees, right? And it turned in they turned it into a, a drug. And before they were able to come up with a novel chemical synthesis pathway that was kind of easy, uh, they they did wild crap. They wild sourced all the barks, right? And so. But that knowledge didn't come from the guys that owned that proprietary information. It came from the individuals that knew those trees and had been using it for centuries. And so that whole kind of economic stream of wildcrafting kind of got bought out because you had a lot of people making a lot of money off of that drug. And the gains that came from it came from areas of information and knowledge that weren't necessarily upheld and respected other things could be where it's where it's grown you know even if it's cultivated or not like making sure that you understand where an herb's natural presence is can be very helpful right because as it changes environment or it changes growing conditions or you know the ecological set points you can definitely see changes in the chemotype right the potency of those things so specifically flavonoids, polyphenols, you know, all these things that are used as qualitative pest management systems for the plant that our body uses for good, um, they all change when the environment changes, right? So you've got the, you know, the first big
0: issue seems like sourcing where you're asking, is this is this an herb that we want to sell, you know, and we'll be able to sell because who knows what the supply is going to be? And then it seems like the second big issue is is the stuff that we're buying real? If it, even if it is real, does it have things in it, contaminants or adulterants that are either deliberate or, 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 otherwise, right? Yeah, like so. Tell me about you know how you how you go through that process of making sure that you're getting the real stuff and you're getting stuff that's not contaminated. I think the
1: big thing is is you know uh, we build out you know the testing part of it, right? So that's that, and it's many many rounds that we look at to kind of get a sense. So we typically look at multiple lots uh, and what we're looking through and looking at really is identity, right? So, you know, there's ways to test that, that aren't just going to be like one or two compounds It says, is this truly the, you know, the part of the plant that is specified and the genus and species of the plant that's specified? And one way of doing that's a technique called HPTLC. So it's a way that it kind of makes a little picturesque fingerprint that can be treated in a couple of different ways to show numerous compounds. And then you would have a, a reference standard that would be consistently like a botanical speed in a reference standard so that you would be able to extract it in the same way and show it to say, look, this is the extract coming from these individuals. This is the extract coming from the thing that I just made. That's a reference standard. And they're the same. And then from adulterants, you know, you can look at it from a couple of different ways. Sometimes people might add things in to kind of get to mirror what you would be expecting to see. Um, So if there's supposed to be a lot of quercetin in there, they may put something else that still kind of looks like quercetin on certain ways of testing it but doesn't on others. And so knowing kind of what the range of expected ingredient or chemical in that ingredient may be is a, is another good thing. So we'll run a couple of different assays to kind of look and see what the overarching chemical fingerprint looks like, but also what the ratios are between them to make sure that they're as expected, even when you are making an extract. So even as a, with an extraction, the majority of the time, you're always going to increase the overall purity of the the fingerprint, but the aspects of the fingerprint say relatively the same, right? So if I'm looking at ingredient X, Y, and Z, and they're supposed to be you know, at certain percentages, they're never gonna change if I make the extract, except for they'll be more potent as they come up through, right? And then lastly, uh, we look at environmental contaminants. So heavy metals, bio-burden, which is gonna be like uh, your microbial components and then for botanicals, we actually go above and beyond what we would see in some of the regulations and look at what's called benzo benzopyrenees. Uh, and so those are indicative. That's burnt organic material, right? Exactly, right. So that's like your barbecue phenomenon. right? Cigarette um, smoke or? Yep, uh, anything kind of combusted. And so, uh, you know, in small amounts, they're still considered to be, you know, um, Arsinogens. and so we test that because what you can see is if you're looking at botanicals, they have to be dried, right? So how an individual is controlling drying those and and making sure that they're enriching the product correctly is another key aspect of quality. So if we see those coming up, you know, and being above our our limits, which are very very low, we're talking about parts per billion. That is another you know aspect of making sure that we have a quality ingredient that's going in our product.
0: You know what I'm really getting from this is to a consumer, if you're going to buy a product, make sure the people that are selling it know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Because <laughs> like, there's
0: a lot that needs to be known.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of it. And when, you know, I think that when, you know, you get groups that are passionate about these things, it'll come through, right? Like, that they're going to want to look at these things. They're going to want to make sure that it's a safe and efficacious product and it works how it's supposed to every time.
0: Well, I think we're going to need to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to answer some questions about all this stuff we're talking about that have come in from our listeners. Do you want a monthly dose of wellness delivered directly to your inbox? Thorne's Take 5 Daily offers the latest wellness news, research, and insights distilled down into easy-to-digest and fun-to-read stories. It's updated weekly with stories from Thorne's very own medical team. You'll read about the latest in immune health, diet, lifestyle advice, managing stress, and more. Head to Thorne.com and visit Take 5 Daily to subscribe for free and have your wellness content delivered directly to your inbox. Visit thorn.com to learn more. That's T H O R N E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer questions that have come in from our community. The first question that has come in this week is from a listener who asked, I'm unclear on exactly what a vitamin is. There are minerals like iron, potassium, zinc. You can see those on the table of elements. I assume vitamins are compounds of elements. Which ones... When we eat minerals, are they compounds or we get the pure element? So it seems like this is a time for a chemistry discussion,
1: Stephen. Yeah, and a great one. And I know it can be confusing. People get the idea that everything is a vitamin, right? Right. So I get that. It's kind of like almost like a spice drawer, right? You know, everything becomes an herb and no one knows what spice spices or vice versa. Uh, but, you know, the minerals, I think, were, you know, lock on. So you can have those minerals um, that like iron, potassium, zinc in a couple of different forms uh there's an inorganic form which is kind of alluding to the table of elements right so molecular zinc molecular iron and the like uh that and might these are out. not vitamins not yet so clear. we're going to tackle the mineral one first because then i think and then go back around and then so you know what i would say with that is you know, is that we're going to get the majority of the time in the supplements uh, that I think are meaningful, an, an organically chelated version of that, and that's the same in your food, right? So something uh, with, a, with a more of an organic compound to it, uh, so it has carbon, hydrogen, uh, those types of things, will be linked to the mineral. Um, one that everyone might see or know would be something like uh, magnesium citrate or magnesium dysglycinate, But generally, that's how they're stored, uh, you know in in the food that were eating, uh, you know, with some semblance of an organic tail to them. Uh, but that doesn't
0: that, make it a vitamin. That just makes it better absorbed.
1: No, exactly. But that organic compound was kind of the segue in the swing, right? So, that's where we start to delineate a vitamin. And there's a very specific kind of definition to that because it's a group of organic compounds. So not every organic compound is a vitamin, to your point, Bob, right? We can use that organic compound to chelate and like we see in food, but we can have a certain subset of those be a vitamin. What delineates that is that they have to be seen as essential for normal like growth and or nutrition they need limited quantities. So very small amounts. So micronutrients, and then, uh, these cannot be synthesized in our body. So we'll go through them. Anything that you see like vitamin with a, with an alphabetic, um, behind it, vitamin B, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, uh the B vitamins are split up into numerous, uh, ones that could be folate riboflavin, um, vitamin B12, which is cobalamin, all of these kind of fit that bill of an organic compound that we don't make, that is essential to our body working, that is something we need in small amounts, versus an organic compound we need in large amounts would be a macronutrient, so protein, carbohydrate, fat, or botanicals, which will also be organic compounds, uh, which some may argue you know, may fit into that realm of definition of a vitamin, uh, but unfortunately they do not, uh, but they do do a lot for us in the organic na- uh, realm. Um, and they come specifically from our diet and we don't, make them. but we cannot, uh, they are not completely essential for our, our development. Um, so that's why we kind of make that split, if that makes sense.
0: So we have vitamins that basically help our chemistry work better in our body. And then we have minerals that also help our blood chemistry work better but they are separate separate chemicals
1: separate. exactly exactly one being inorganic and on the table of elements right to your point minerals uh, are all inorganic and bound to something else and then the vitamins are all organic and they're made of different molecules okay the
0: next question is why do some thorn products come as a powder and some come as a capsule for example magnesium citrate versus magnesium
1: this glycinate. Now, thought that most products were in a powder or an oil. And that's the thing. So if you think about it, like the capsule is just kind of the, the scoop, you know, condensed down. So most everything we have is in a, in a powder, right? That powder can be encapsulated um, in a little capsule or free floating and you mix it into water. But, you know, the the constraints to that or, you know, why we do what we do differently comes down to a couple of different things, right? Some one may be the dose. So if you look at magnesium citrate um, as an example, you're gonna see that overall you're gonna have with the two different sources in one capsule about 135 milligrams um, of magnesium. And that's gonna get coming from citrate and, and malate. So versus uh, the magnesium bisglycinate, um, which is going to have a powder form that's going to be you know, upwards into the 200s uh, for how we have our dose. And so you know, as we start to try to dose that, some things don't fit in the capsule or they fit in a lot of capsules. And so making sure that we can get something for an individual that gets them the right dose in an, in an easy way so that they stay, uh, what I would say, adherent to what the, the label is asking them to do is a big thing the other reason might be also is also going to be why we're using that dose right so you might notice well the magnesium content is going to be higher in bisglycinate but the scoop is a bit larger than that right and so a lot of that is going to be glycine which has its own benefits right And and it pairs well with magnesium so if you think about magnesium as the mineral it has about, what, 300 different things that it can do in the body, right? Like it's a cofactor in numerous enzymes, numerous functions, neurological, musculoskeletal, cardiac, overarching stress and, and metabolisms for energetics, the like. And so, you know, the glycinate and the glycine for it is going to be a great pairing into neurological support because of that kind of neuromodulating glycine molecule which pairs well with the musculoskeletal components or the neurological components why we would want to use that. So sometimes that will be the other component that changes within powder versus capsule which is why we're trying to get in there the rest of the ingredients that would make up the formula.
0: The other thing I might throw in is that some things just don't taste good as a powder and I <laughs> that is My favorite <laughs> you know, my my favorite example is N-acetylcysteine or NAC. Oh yeah. Is that uh, it's uh, very uh, sulfury and Sometimes a capsule will crack open in a bottle and people will bring it back to me, to my clinical practice and say, oh, there's something wrong with this. And I I smell it and I go, no, that's what NAC
1: smells like. It just got out of its capsule. So it's a a great point uh, (laughs) that, you know, I would say that and uh, another one that I think, you know, tops a lot of people list if it does leak out onto the capsule is berberine uh, just because it's so bitter. That's the other piece for sure is that some of these things you don't want to have in the mouth. And and also in a capsule, sometimes we want to make sure that it gets into the small intestines, to your point. So it may also drive into uh, having what we would call a delayed release, um, where mm-hmm. the, the small intestine will be uh, more basic than the stomach. And at that point, the capsule would dissolve and allow for that potentially sensitive um, material to be released, right? So you'll see that probiotics is a great example. So the
0: next question is uh, from a longtime Thorne fan who says, a few of the products I've recommended over the years have been reformulated. What motivates changes to already successful formulas? Yeah,
1: and I think that's a great question. Um, I can tell you that we really don't want to uh, reformulate if we don't have to, right? We're very, a lot of us uh, working within the R&D and medical affairs departments at Thorne are very fond of what we do and what we build, but there are some cases that uh, we have to. Um, one of them being, you know, over time, uh, the nature of what we're doing evolves, and there may be an ingredient that we had kind of thought should have been in there or a form that should have been in there, but it wasn't ready yet. And so we had to wait, but we think it's worthwhile to make it better. And I, I bring this one up, uh, back to, Phytosomes, Right. One of our favorite things that we like at Thorn for increasing how much of an ingredient gets into the body. And so if you look at our berberine, we recently added in more berberine phytosome to kind of balance things out because we wanted to really get to a formulation that kind of pivoted into the most uh, what we would think of as effective manner of getting this in and spreading out the ways that we think about berberine in the body, which are some related to the GI system and some related internally.
0: So new ingredients sometimes come along that we've been waiting for and they're finally there. And and I assume that other ingredients may suddenly become hard to get. And I, I know that one example that I think we can talk about is that we used to sell a lot of valerian root and we had a lot of problems sourcing that.
1: We did. We did. And um, that's the the main other category. And you hit that right on the head is that there's either things within our quality system that we are facing that we no longer have been able to find as you know, an issue. And that's where valerian root came in. I think beginning of the talk, we described the benzoyl pyrenes. And for a long time, that was one of the things that we were finding was that it was really hard to find sourcing that was consistent on benzoopyrene levels um, for the extract. And so reluctantly, because we all know it's a great herb, does really good for sleep support, uh, we had to pull back. And I can tell you, we still comb and look for valerian root and find the time to be able to bring that back around, but we'll take it out of the limelight if we feel that it's gonna disrupt what we think is our our, our quality product, uh, based off of some of those metrics. Picoriza was another one that kind of fell out, you know, that was used in some of the formulations for, uh, you know, back to the example of rhodiola.
0: That was an old liver formula, wasn't it? The it was, picoriza it was.
1: And it was in in, in Picariza for a while and for a long time had been thought of as a great piece. So, but we had to move away from it because of that. It was that much like rhodiola, it was um, around the ecological constraints and constructs that were causing there to see a reduction in the species.
0: Well, all right, folks, that's all the time we have for this week. Dr. Stephen Phipps, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. If people want to follow your work and, and what you're up to specifically Where's the best place for them to go to keep track of you?
1: Well, we can always find new products online at Thorn.com And happy to show you what we're doing and the things that we're looking at on uh, LinkedIn, either on Thorn or uh, at Stephen Phipps uh, nd PhD.
0: Great. Excellent. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to tune in next time when Dr. Phipps and I will tackle the topic of our metabolism and what we can do about it with dietary supplements. Until then. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorne's Take Five Daily Blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in and don't forget to join us next time for another
1: episode of the Thorn Podcast.